Welcome to Between the Lines, presenting news and analysis of critical issues affecting our communities, the nation, and the world. I'm Scott Harris. This week we present Tiffany Muller, President and Executive Director of the group and Citizens United, who discusses the impact unlimited and unaccountable campaign cash has had on U.S. politics and the lobbyist campaign to kill parts of President Biden's human infrastructure bill. Sylvia Pastorelli, a climate and energy campaigner with the Greenpeace European Unit, who talks about a recent investigative report calling out the deceptive greenwashing claims by six European energy companies. And Tracy Rosenberg, executive director of Media Alliance, who examines Facebook whistleblower Francis Hogan's explosive Senate testimony and the national campaign to fire Facebook CEO Mark Zuckerberg. But first, we begin with a summary of some of the week's underreported news stories. A six-year inquiry by El Salvador judge Jorge Guzman into the infamous 1981 El Mazote massacre committed by Salvadoran army troops is falling apart. ProPublica reports that for 40 years, victims and family members sought justice, but have faced opposition from El Salvador's military, the nation's wealthy elite, and reactionary president Nayib Bukele, seen by many as the Donald Trump of Latin America. In the inquiry, former top Salvadoran officers, including the former Minister of Defense, faced charges of kidnapping, rape, and murder. On August 31st, the legislature, controlled by Bukele's party, fired every judge in the country older than 60 years old, including Guzman, who is 61. Within El Salvador, the prevailing view is that the primary motivation was to end the investigation into the massacre. In December 1981, a Salvadoran army battalion known as the Atlacatl executed 143 men, women, and children, 90% of whom were under 12 years of age. After a 1993 peace agreement ended Salvador's civil war, a UN Truth Commission concluded that the government was responsible for at least three-quarters of the 75,000 civilians killed during the war. The National Assembly run by right-wing political parties, then passed a sweeping amnesty law. In 2011, the Inter-American Court of Human Rights ruled the amnesty law violated El Salvador's obligation to investigate grave human rights abuses. According to the Pandora Papers, an investigation into offshore financial havens used by the rich and powerful, South Dakota has emerged as America's leading tax haven, shielding the assets of billionaires and individuals who committed serious financial crimes. South Dakota, whose top Republican politicians are leading a drive to repeal the federal estate tax, now rivals nations such as the Cayman Islands, Switzerland, and Panama as a place where the super-rich hide their assets from government taxes. A 2020 state report revealed that South Dakota's burgeoning trust industry holds an estimated $367 billion in assets, a sum approaching the annual economic output of the Republic of Ireland. The American prospect says the phenomenal growth has been supercharged by the state's aggressive drive to attract money by shielding trust owners' assets from foreign governments, taxes, and even former spouses. 
The Pandora Papers investigation highlighted two Latin American figures with criminal enterprises who set up accounts in South Dakota. They are Colombian textile magnate Jose Daur Ambar, who was fined $20 million by U.S. authorities investigating a major money laundering network, and former Dominican Republic Vice President Carlos Morales, who before his death was chief executive of the largest sugar producer in the country. The company was accused of forcing workers and their families off their land at gunpoint. His family moved his assets from the Bahamas to South Dakota after the Bahamas enacted legislation requiring companies and certain trusts to declare their real owners to a government registry. In mid-November, 1.4 million members of the International Brotherhood of Teamsters will elect a new union president which could foreshadow a new direction for organized labor which faces immense challenges including the growth of anti-union giant Amazon, the COVID-19 pandemic, and a controversial contract signed with UPS. It will be the first time in 20 years that James P. Hoffa will not be on the ballot. In These Times magazine reports that the election comes as many Hoffa Teamster loyalists are defecting to the reform-backed slate after recent unpopular contracts were signed with UPS and Yellow Roadway Freight. Two slates are running for control of the Teamster's top offices, Teamster Power, led by Steve Verma and running mate Ron Herrera, and Teamsters United, backed by the reform group Teamsters for a Democratic Union, led by Sean O'Brien and running mate Fred Zuckerman. O'Brien is calling for defending contracts, organizing core industries that have been neglected, and employing the threat of strikes to gain leverage in negotiations. Verma has leaned heavily into attacks on O'Brien's record, painting himself as a safe bet. This week's news summary was compiled by Bob Nixon. For Between the Lines, I'm Anna Manzo. Over the past month, corporate media have focused much of their attention on what they call the civil war within the Democratic Party, the internal disagreement about the size and scope of President Biden's proposed $3.5 trillion human infrastructure plan. But apart from two U.S. senators and four representatives in the House, Democrats are mostly united in support of the president's Build Back Better plan. While polling finds that virtually all measures in the human infrastructure plan are very popular, armies of corporate lobbyists with buckets of campaign cash are doing their best to peel away the critical votes Democrats will need to pass their bill through the reconciliation process that bypasses a GOP filibuster. Illustrating the point is Arizona's Democratic Senator Kristen Sinema, who campaigned for office in 2018 in support of permitting the government to negotiate lower prescription drug prices. But after Cinema accepted more than $500,000 from executives and PACs in the pharmaceutical and health products industries, she's now an opponent of a provision in the infrastructure bill that would lower drug prices. Your reporter spoke with Tiffany Muller, president and executive director of the group N Citizens United. Here she discusses the role played by the U.S. Supreme Court's 2010 Citizens United ruling 
that opened the floodgates of unlimited and unaccountable campaign cash in U.S. politics, impacting virtually all legislative proposals. I think the examples that we're seeing right now with the policy fights that are happening on Capitol Hill with the Build Back Better agenda and the infrastructure bill are really good ones to take a look at and see how special interests, corporate special interests, have really, frankly, captured our congressional system. So let's pull back for just a minute and and look at some overall numbers. Right now, there are more than 4,000 lobbyists working day in and day out on these two bills. 4,000, that's more than seven lobbyists for every single member of Congress. And 10 industries have spent more than $700 million this year alone lobbying. And the Chamber of Commerce leads the pack on those, which has spent over $30 million on lobbying to undermine the Build Back Better agenda And while they had previously been in favor of the bipartisan infrastructure bill, uh, they now have come out against it in an effort to further undermine the Build Back Better agenda. And this is really all about uh, the fact that they want to continue to make sure that their taxes aren't going to go up because one of the revenue raisers in the Build Back Better agenda is to actually raise the corporate tax rate. As your listeners may remember, they all got a $2 trillion corporate tax handout in 2017 when the Republicans were in charge in Congress. They want to make sure that the regulations stay low, that uh, they don't want the climate change agenda to go into effect. Um, And so they've been one of the top spenders against this. And the U.S. Chamber has really utilized money in politics since the Citizens United decision to do all kinds of damage to hurt American families. Last year, they stalled COVID uh, relief packages for months because they wanted to make sure that businesses couldn't be held liable for not protecting their employees from getting uh, sick and putting in the proper safeguards. In 2017, they vowed that they would campaign against any Republican who didn't vote for the corporate tax handout that I was just talking about. And, of course, we all know that they lobbied hard against the Affordable Care Act and tried for years to get it replaced with a Republican version instead. And then let's take one more example. Let's talk about pharma. Right now in the Build Back Better agenda, there's the opportunity to make sure that we finally address the rising cost of prescription drugs in this country and that we actually are able to bring down those costs for American families, that we let Medicare, one of the largest providers in this country, be able to negotiate the cost of prescription drugs. Well, pharma hates this. It would eat into their profit line, even though it would help the American people. And so they have alone, the pharma lobby has 1,500 lobbyists on Capitol Hill. They've spent $85 million right now on lobbying, and they're running ads all over the country to attack Democrats to try to get them to not vote for this provision. And so you can see how just in those two examples, how these big corporate special interests flood the system with money, with lobbyists with campaign dollars, with dark money ads on TV, and basically they corrupt the policymaking process so that it no longer is reflective of what's best for the American people and is rather about who can write the biggest check. Look, here's the thing we have to do. We have to break that tie between money and policy outcomes. And the only way we're going to do that 
is to begin to end the dominance of big money in politics and to make sure any amount of money that is spent is fully disclosed and transparent. And what, what we know right now is there's only one party trying to do that. The Democrats uh, in Congress have actually stood up to try to do something about changing the system. And the anti-corruption and uh, voting rights legislation that would take on that money in politics it was called the For the People Act. It's now called the Freedom to Vote Act. Um, was voted for by every single uh, Democratic member of the House and every single Democratic member of the Senate, including Senators Manchin and Sinema. One of the things we know we need to do is we actually need to not just address these one-off person to person, but we actually have to change the system. Um, otherwise, we're going to continue to get outcomes that only help corporate special interests I wonder if you'd say a bit more about the Freedom to Vote Act, the successor to the For the People Act. What do we know about the lobbyists trying to overturn those bills, which includes, as you said, a pushback against dark money in politics here in the country? Uh, the Freedom to Vote Act takes on that dark money. It says if you're going to spend money in our elections, it has to be fully disclosed and transparent, uh, which is something that you would think we we could all agree on. And as a matter of fact, frankly, is something all Americans, of whether they're Republican, Democrats, or independents, do agree on. Um, so this should be a no-brainer, but it turns out that groups like the Chamber of Commerce, they're fighting this bill very hard. That was Tiffany Muller, president and executive director of the group and Citizens United. Learn more about the impact deregulating campaign contributions has had on U.S. politics by visiting our Between the Lines website, at btlonline.org. Climate activists from all over the U.S. are gathering October 11th through the 15th in Washington, D.C. for the People versus Fossil Fuels actions at the White House and Congress. Participants are risking arrest in nonviolent acts of civil disobedience to call on President Biden to declare a climate emergency and use his executive powers to stop construction of fossil fuel projects. The theme of the actions on October 14th is No False Solutions. A week before the actions began, Dismog Blog, an investigative climate news outlet, released a report commissioned by Greenpeace Netherlands with an analysis of so-called greenwashing claims by six European energy companies. The report calls out some of the false solutions proposed by the fossil fuel industry that people in the U.S. are condemning during their week of protest actions. Between the Lines' Melinda Tuhu spoke with Sylvia Pastorelli, a climate and energy campaigner with the Greenpeace European Unit, who breaks down the report's analysis and talks about next steps in the campaign. What we did here was to, to um, analyze over 3,000 different ads from Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and, and YouTube. And we have selected a group of, of six companies that we thought were quite representative, but also vary a little bit in size so we can really see the scale of the problem. One is Shell, Total, which recently rebranded as Total Energies, Prime, Any, Repsol, and, and Fortum. 
And we have seen that there's still a very, very big discrepancy between the number of these adverts that are focusing on green activities, green practices, and what their portfolios are focusing on, and how much of their portfolio is actually dedicated to green technologies. One of the biggest disparities that we have found between the green advertisement and the fossil fuel investment, for instance, was from Shell. Shell dedicates roughly 81% of their advertisement to greenwashing, but at the same time, they invest 80% into oil and gas. So really, the problem here is that the reality that they're choosing to portray, that they're choosing to show people, is very different from the reality of their core business. Silvia Pastorelli, the timing of this report is fortuitous because from October 11th through the 15th in the U.S., Thousands of people will be coming to Washington, D.C. to participate in the people versus fossil fuels, to risk arrest at the White House and the Capitol, to demand the end of fossil fuel construction and emergency action to address the climate crisis. There is a different theme for each day, and one of the themes is to call out false solutions. One of the things we'll be focusing on is the concept of net zero, which I think most people don't understand. Can you explain that? The concept of net zero is one of those uh, tricky concepts. First of all, I think it's uh, it's very abstract. It's again one of those uh, one of those things that after a while starts to lose a little bit of meaning, but also it's really problematic in in practice because I I've seen a shift in the in the recent years from talking about decarbonization, from reducing emission to net zero. Very often these two things are mentioned in an almost interchangeable way, but actually they do not mean the same thing. Net zero doesn't necessarily mean reducing emission, or at least the focus of of net zero is not necessarily on reducing the emission. But if you want, you can look at it more like an accounting trick, essentially. It's trying to offset, it's trying to capture the emission. And these are all all things that we, we find are false solutions because they do not focus on solving the problem at the source, which is reducing emissions, but actually trying to add some end of the pipeline fixes, essentially. You know, you can still drive your car if you can offset your, you your petrol with our scheme to plant the trees somewhere else. Or uh, we can use carbon capture storage to capture all the emissions. So it doesn't really matter if you reduce the emissions or not, we will be able to capture them. And then, of course, it's a completely different conversation about these two practices and why they do not work the way they tell us they do. What do you think can happen in Europe to move toward a true green energy system? Um, So this report was actually launched on the same day that we have started our uh, European Citizen Initiative, uh, which is essentially a tool that European citizens have at their disposal to change the law, to make law at the European level, which is uh, not the usual procedure. So what we're doing here, we're calling Greenpeace and other organizations, we're calling on a ban on all fossil fuel advertisement and sponsorship across Europe. Once we will reach 1 million signatures, if we reach this million of million signatures, we can then take them to the European Commission and, and say to the European Commission, look, there's at least a million European citizens who want to ban all sponsorship and advertisement of fossil fuel companies. The Commission will have to respond, will have to say yes or no to 
put our draft directive into law. So, of course, that is not a given, but the more support we gather, the more chances, of course, uh, of, of course we have. And we have seen this tool work in the past. There have been others, uh, other European citizens' initiatives that have been successful. What we're really trying to do is also to put the responsibility on the shoulders of those companies who are primarily responsible for the climate crisis instead of on individual people, on consumers. That was Silvia Pastorelli, a climate and energy campaigner with the Greenpeace European Unit. Learn more about the investigation into the deceptive marketing practices by six major European fossil fuel companies by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. Facebook is the world's largest social media network, with nearly 2 billion users. The company, started by Mark Zuckerberg when he was a student at Harvard University, has become an essential communications tool for business and individuals. As Facebook grew, it acquired other Internet-based companies, including Instagram, WhatsApp, Messenger, and Oculus VR. While Facebook's stated mission is to, quote, give people the power to build community and bring the world closer together. The company's business model and profitability depends on maximizing engagement, where the most provocative content achieves the greatest visibility, creating an echo chamber of extremism, bullying, hate speech, disinformation, conspiracy theories, and rhetorical violence. Many former Facebook employees have publicly condemned the company's business practices But the testimony of Francis Haugen, a former Facebook data scientist before the U.S. Senate on October 5th, made some familiar criticisms of the company, but with the support of thousands of internal documents. Haugen bluntly stated, she believes Facebook harms children, sows division, and undermines democracy in pursuit of astronomical profits. Your reporter spoke with Tracy Rosenberg, executive director of the group Media Alliance, who talks about Hagen's testimony and the campaign to fire Facebook co-founder and CEO Mark Zuckerberg. What Francis Hagen delivered, and I think probably did so a bit more clearly than a number of the other, you know, Facebook whistleblowers who have come forward, is sort of the question of intention and the question of knowledge. As stated, she's made it very clear that it is her educated opinion from working in the civic integrity division in Facebook, there's absolutely no lack of knowledge of the negative impacts that we can all see, that in fact, Facebook had studied them extensively. They had concluded that the way they were handling their algorithms, certain characteristics of their site, were specifically doing uh, having negative impacts that could be quantified. Instagram in particular was creating negative body images for young women and negatively impacting their mental health in a significant number of people, to name one, uh, that they had actively contributed to ethnic slaughter and genocide in Myanmar. 
and also in, I believe it was West Africa as well, that they specifically played a role in the buildup to January 6th and so on. So that basically the things that sort of anecdotally we could all observe had been thoroughly researched, quantified, and measured by Facebook. They had drawn specific conclusions with their internal research. And having read all of that, they made specific choices not to take the actions that were recommended to mitigate the harmful impacts that they had been shown were happening. And this is sort of a different process than the way it's often been sort of described as, oh, you know, these are complicated decisions and nuance and pros and cons. It's a very clear sort of statement of you were given an opportunity here with all of the data and research you could possibly want to understand exactly what the impact was, probably more so than any of us on the outside could possibly have seen. And you looked at it and you looked at your bank book and you said no in a concrete way. You said, no, let those harmful impacts go because it would cost me money, and I don't want to do that. And this is from someone who is fabulously rich and has more money than anyone could possibly need. That was the motivation, and that was the reasoning. And a lot of us would say that verges on white-collar crime. You know, it's basically placing money that you don't even need in front of literally people's mental health, and physical safety. What, in your view, should Congress be doing in terms of regulating Facebook and social media platforms in general? There's discussion about reforming Section 230 that immunizes social media companies from being sued over what their users post. There's also the idea that antitrust action should be taken against Facebook, particularly uh, because they are a monopoly in terms of uh, social media right now. So when you're looking at Section 230, what it comes down to is that there are some reforms that can be done that would essentially provide some limits on Section 230 liability that can be carefully crafted, and that's really where we have to go. And that's a tough conversation because Washington, D.C. is not a place that is real good at subtlety. And they're not a place that is real good at deep policy. So we get a lot of sound bites when what we actually need is careful examination of where 230 liability makes sense and the point at which it stops making sense. Tell our listeners about the Fire Zuck campaign, your demand that the board of directors at Facebook terminate Mark Zuckerberg. We've been doing this now for the better part of a year and a half, getting on two years. And so the Fire Zuck sort of, you know, hashtag or campaign came out of basic frustration. We feel like we're asking Facebook as their users, as essentially the parties that are making all the money for the organization, to do some fairly simple things. And what comes back in response to these kinds of demands is one of two things. Either we're already doing it, which they're not, or we're going to wait for the government to break us up or we don't see the importance of it or blah, blah, blah. And what it comes down to as Mark Zuckerberg is in charge, it looks like these kinds of demands are not going to be undertaken voluntarily by Facebook. It just isn't going to happen. The leadership is not there. They will do things when they're forced to and not before.
That was Tracy Rosenberg, executive director of Media Alliance, part of a coalition of groups demanding change at Facebook and the firing of Mark Zuckerberg. Learn more about the Facebook Users Union and the Fire Zuck campaign by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. Listening to Between the Lines, a weekly program presenting news and analysis of critical issues affecting our communities, the nation, and the world. Between the Lines is produced and distributed by Squeaky Wheel Productions. If you have suggestions for topics and guests, please contact Between the Lines through our website at btlonline.org, where you can hear our current and archive programs and streaming audio and support our show. There you can also subscribe to free weekly podcasts, program summaries, and interview transcripts. Follow us on Facebook at Between the Lines Radio News Magazine and on Twitter at BTL Radio News. Thanks for listening on Verdon Square Radio in Summit, New Jersey, KPSQ in Fayetteville, Arkansas, WLNX in Lincoln, Illinois, dozens of other community radio stations across the U.S. and abroad, and wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Our theme music was written by Richard Hill and performed by Mikata. This week's program was produced by Susan Bramhall, Mary Hunt, Anna Manzo, Bob Nixon, Melinda Tuhus, and Jeff Yates. For Between the Lines, I'm Scott Harris. <laughs>